Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. This morning we're in Galatians 5, studying verses 16 through 26. And we're in our second message from our series on the Holy Spirit called Earnestly Desire. Today's message is titled, Keep in Step. Well, during our family vacation this past week to the beach, there was a moment when my daughter, nieces, and I were standing on at the edge of the ocean when a bug suddenly buzzed me and I swatted it right into the water. When I picked it up, we realized that because of the weight of the sandy water on its wings, it was unable to fly. So I cupped it into my hand and blew air onto it until it was dry and sand free. Suddenly it crawled up my hand and onto my fingertips and worked its wings a few times and became airborne. And as it was flying away, it took the direction towards the ocean, and my niece shouted play by play, it's alive, it's flying. And then finally, as it fell into the water, she said, it's dead. (laughs) When we turn to the book of Galatians, we find these first century Christians taking the same flight pattern. First, after hearing the preaching of the gospel, they repented of their sins and trusted Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. As a result, they were free from the weight of sin and condemnation. But soon after their salvation, soon after the establishment of this local church, some false teachers crept in and began preaching another message, saying that it's not enough to simply repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ and Christ alone, but that you must accompany your faith with these works Enough good deeds in order to truly be right with God. And these people, this church, they had believed this false gospel. They believed this false message. And when they did, to keep in step with this analogy, they stopped flying and became weighed down with legalistic demands. Friends, legalism kills spiritual vitality as fast as anything in the Christian life. And this wasn't just a problem for the Galatian church in the first century. Self-imposed legalism is something that we face to this day. So what is legalism? Let's take a moment and define it. My friend Mickey Connolly has the following definition. He says, legalism is living as if relating to God is on the basis of my performance rather than by faith in the performance of Christ. So friends, how are we supposed to live the Christian life? Once we are saved, are we supposed to walk around on eggshells in fear of losing God's love? In fear of losing his favor? In fear of losing 
our salvation? Is there a formula for growing from new Christians to more mature Christians, more Christians that are, that are not subject to the winds of new doctrine, but that are firm and established and steadfast and faithful? Well, Paul tells us in this text. He tells us in Galatians 5 the answer for the question that we're asking. He says, when we yield our lives to the Spirit's power, he makes us more like Jesus. When we yield our lives to the Spirit's power, he makes us more like Jesus. Well, now, if you would, please join me by turning your attention what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, that is the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help to understand and apply his word. Lord, we love you, and we ask for your help. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point this morning is yielding to him. Right from the outset in our text, in verse 15, Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. And in order to understand what Paul means by this phrase, we need to travel backwards just a little bit to Galatians chapter Three. In, in Galatians 3, Paul paints a picture of the Christian before Christ. He says that each of us were imprisoned, standing behind the bars of sin. And outside guarding the prison and our jail cell was the law. Chapter 3, verse 23. When we wanted out, when we shook the bars, and we cried to be let out, to be finally free, he would reply, that is the law, have your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds? Sit back down. 
But when Christ came to us in the preaching of the gospel, he opened the prison doors. Now, Paul says, we have no guardian. Indeed, we have no prison. We have no jail cell. We are totally free, completely free, walking out free. So then the question becomes, how are we supposed to live? If all we've ever known is slavery to sin behind the bars of sin, now he's let us out. How do we live? What do we do? How do we reintegrate with society? We say there's not a requirement to live by the law to earn salvation. Won't people wander off into sin and then abuse grace? Well, that's the very issue that Paul is addressing in this text and in this entire book of Galatians. Well, the answer to that question in Pauline phraseology is absolutely not. His point in chapter 3 is, Christian, now that you have been saved by grace, do you suppose that you must keep your salvation by works? Think about it, Christian. If you were saved, if you were let out of the prison of sin by grace... You did nothing to let yourself out. He let you out. Paul's point is, do you suppose now that you must keep that salvation by your works? That you must sustain that salvation by your good deeds, by your good works? His point is, since salvation came by the Spirit, then salvation will remain by the Spirit. Let me know, God does not want more in your own strength rule followers in Christianity. That kind of graceless living does not highlight the free gift of salvation. In fact, it does the opposite. It draws attention to ourselves instead of drawing attention to the mercy of God's grace, the mercy found in forgiveness. So then Paul says to us in our text, getting up to chapter 5, he says, walk by the Spirit. And what I love is the language that he uses to legalistic Christians. The pace is to walk. The pace is to walk by the Spirit. But if you notice, just a few verses before our text in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, you were running well. But legalism, it had come into the church and it had stunted their sprint in the Christian life. And now to be restored, Paul prescribes an antidote. He says to them, slow the pace. Let's go back to the basics. Walk by the Spirit. But then he says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When Paul uses this word flesh, he is always referring to our sinful nature, our indwelling sin, the result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. He then provides for us this insight in verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh 
are against the Spirit, capital S, that is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So in other words, the Christian life is a war of competing desires. And if we look to ourselves for the persuasive power to live a godly life, we will never find it. But if we learn to lean on the Spirit, if we learn to yield to the Spirit, He will be the one to produce in us the power to obey God. The picture in this first point is not that the Holy Spirit has made footprints in the sand, and then our job is to jump into each footstep in our own strength in order to keep in step with him. That's not Paul's point at all. That's not what it means to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means to depend on him for enabling grace to obey God. To daily depend on him for enabling grace to obey God. I love how Jerry Bridges says it. He says, Though the power for godly character comes from Christ, the responsibility of developing and displaying that character is ours. We are dependent on God to enable us to do what we are responsible to do. Therefore, Paul says, depend on him. Walk in in step with the Spirit. Our second point this morning is hostility to our holiness. My historic hero, J.I. Packer, often spoke about the tragedy of Keswick theology, which is sometimes known as higher life theology, or the theology that says, let go and let God for all of Christian living. He tells of the, early, the time early in his Christian life when he was first introduced to this Christian doctrine, this new Christian doctrine, and early in the 1940s and the 1950s. And he attempted, Packard attempted to apply its formula to his own life to defeat some besetting sin that he had been plagued by since his walk with Christ. He recalls that try as he might to simply give it to God, he was still sinning. Well, then in God's providence, as Packer was often found in a library, he stumbled upon a book by the Puritan John Owen called Mortification of Sin. And as he sat and opened its pages, he discovered Paul's point that he's making to us this morning. The Christian life is a war of competing desires. Expect hostility to your pursuit of holiness from within and from without, but wage war against your sin. That's what Paul says in verse 17. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I know that every genuine Christian 
battling with a besetting sin will testify to this intense war, will we not? Maybe this morning it's the Christian man who desires to walk in purity, but continues to feel a strong impulse to view inappropriate images online. Or maybe it's the Christian dad who desires to be patient and kind to his children, but continues to have outbursts of anger. Or maybe it's the Christian woman who desires beauty, but continues to find affirmation in the eyes of men instead of God. Or maybe it's the Christian mom who desires contentment in her calling as a wife and a mother, but continues to long secretly for another life. Friend, the Christian life is a war of competing desires. Our new hearts, our new hearts at the new birth, regeneration, when he made us new, when he took out our stony hearts and he gave us a heart of flesh, our new hearts desire godliness. But indwelling sin, the sin that remains because we are in a fallen world, that indwelling sin coupled with Satan's influence, the demonic influences to disobey and to to be rebellious to God. These things constantly, these two things constantly, constantly try to persuade us towards sin each and every day. But here's the good news that Paul lays out for us in chapter 5 of Galatians, as he does in other places in his writings. In verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Listen, I want to read this again. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. With its passions and desires. My Christian friend, do you understand what that means? It means that the power and the bondage of sin has been broken in the Christian life. Friends, our sin, most importantly, the penalty of our sin, but also our intense passion to sin and even the persuasive power of sin was crucified with Christ. And though the lure is still there and the attractiveness Towards sin remains because we are still in a fallen world. In Christ, what Paul is saying is that we are not powerless to overcome sin. We're not hopeless in our fight against sin. It's not that the Lord has saved us, opened the prison doors that shackled us in our sin and then said, it's up to you to remain 
holy. It's up to you to obey me. It's up to you in your own strength to walk the straight and narrow way that leads to salvation. That's not the Christian life at all. He enables us. He gives us the power. He releases the shackles. He opens the prison doors. And then he says, I give you the Holy Spirit. When you are converted, not later, when you're converted, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into the Spirit and with the Spirit. You have him. It's remarkable. And this is what Paul's saying, Christian, you're not alone. You're anything but alone. You have the Spirit of God. And when you lean on him for the grace, he will enable you to obey. He has the power. He possesses the power to defeat our besetting sins. We're no longer slaves to sin like we once were. You remember this, try as we might before Christ, we would always return to our sin. We would make new resolutions. We'd say to ourselves, I'm not going to do this anymore. No matter what, I'm not going to do this anymore. Yet, each and every time, we would return to sinful patterns and sinful passions. But Christ changes all of that. Jesus changes all of that. Though we war, the Christians should feel themselves growing in Christ-likeness through the years. Some are inching in Christ-likeness. Some are striding, sprinting, growing rapidly. In Christ likeness. But all of us, all Christians, should feel themselves growing through the years, not through the days. Don't look at yesterday to today and say, Oh, I don't see any fruit. Through the years, you should see yourself growing towards conformity to the image and likeness of Jesus. So, my fellow fighter, do not lose heart in your war with sin. Expect hostility towards holiness and daily depend on the Spirit for enabling grace to grow in godliness. John Owen says, Our duty is to apply ourselves unto his commands, and his work is to enable us to perform them. That's exactly what Paul's saying in chapter 5 of Galatians. That leads to our third point this morning. What's the why? What's the why? If the Christian life has hostility, why should we do it? Well, here's why. In verse 19, Paul says, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, Sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warned you, as I warned you before, Paul says, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, if you are a Christian, then you know this to be true as well. One of the first things that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts upon conversion is that he changes our spiritual taste buds. Many of us here this morning could testify to the fact that before Christ, several of these items on this list that Paul just laid out in Galatians 5 tasted good to us. To the unconverted person, some of these things on this list sound like an exciting time. And if we remember these days, these are things that you relished in, things that you passionately pursued. Our hearts craved and our minds indulged deep in sin. And though we were always left feeling empty afterwards, we never left feeling convicted. Conviction that leads to repentance. But then, then we heard the gospel. Someone preached, proclaimed the gospel to us that Christ died for our sins. We heard the invitation to turn from our sin and to put our faith in him alone and we'll be forgiven of our sins. And we felt deep conviction over our sin. And then if we returned to this behavior as young Christians trying to figure out, reintegrate our way into the world that we had just been let into, if we returned to this behavior, we, we found it to no longer taste good. We remember tasting it before conversion and thinking, that tastes great. It made me feel lonely, it made me feel empty, but it still tasted great. But then after conversion, the same thing tasted bitter. It tasted like sand in our mouths. And the reason, friends, the reason for that is because the Spirit of God is holy. And he hates sin. And you know what? He has taken up residence in our hearts if we're new creatures in Christ. And because he's in our heart, he's not happy when sin comes into our lives, when we indulge in sin, so he makes us uncomfortable. He convicts us. What a mercy. But when we walk in the spirit and not the desires of the flesh, Paul says he produces some fruit in our lives. And listen to this fruit in verse 22. He says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Isn't that beautiful? Unfortunately... Many Christians, however, are pursuing discipleship sadly, like a painful slog. Instead of walking by the Spirit, it feels as if they're participating in mirth that many people will participate in tomorrow, which is to run an intense race with a, a weighted vest on your chest. 
That's how many Christians are walking through this life. Looking at all the, the requirements, looking at, the, looking at this list and saying, oh, this is, this is hard. This is a slog. But look at the verbs that Paul uses in Galatians 5. There is no sadness in these fruits of the Spirit. He says, love. And that is, no doubt, love for God and love for God's people and love for the lost in the world. He says, joy. Friends, the Spirit is not happiest when we are joylessly turning from sin and joylessly following the Savior. The Spirit is happiest when we are joyfully following the Savior. Peace, both inward and outward. Patience and kindness, like a Chick-fil-A employee. Goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Friends, how many people have you met in your life who embodied these characteristics and walked away and said to yourself, what a miserable person. Well, the answer is obvious, none. You have never said that. When we meet someone who has and embodies these characteristics, it testifies to another world. It testifies to a new creation. So, Finally, the question remains, how can we go about, in 2023, how can we go about cultivating this kind of fruit in our life? If it's not, as Packer warned, the Keswick theology of sort of just passively submitting ourselves to the Christian life, hoping that fruit is born. If it's not that, Packer warned against that. Paul instructs against that, expect hostility. If it's not that, then what do we do to cultivate? these kinds of fruits in our lives. What do we do? How do we yield ourselves to the persuasive power of the Holy Spirit so that he will produce these fruits in our life? Well, I've got a couple of suggestions for us this morning. The first is this. Form and maintain holy habits. As J.I. Packer liked to call them, form and maintain holy Holy habits. The Holy Spirit works through means of grace, like prayer and like Bible reading, like worship, Sunday morning worship, Apple earbuds early in the morning at your house, worship, prayer, fellowship. The Holy Spirit works through means of grace such as these. He expects you to meet with him in such ways. When Paul says walk in step with the Spirit, walking is a common common biblical reference to the pattern of one's life, the trajectory of one's life. What is your hike? Which way are you going? Which trail are you on? It's an often traversed trail in someone's life. So Paul is saying to us, Christian, create such patterns in your life that you are positioning yourself to constantly commune with God 
through the Holy Spirit. We should not expect the Spirit to produce fruit in our lives if we are walking along our own path. We must bend to him, not him to us. So friends, meet with him, and he will certainly meet with you. So what are your holy habits in the Christian life? What holy habits have you cultivated? What daily holy habits have you cultivated in your own life? Well, the second is stop sinning. It's easy enough, right? Just stop sinning. Now, I don't mean perfectionism when I say this, but what I do mean is stop believing the lie that you're never going to experience freedom from a particular sin. I can't tell you how many Christians I've met who've just given up, who've waved the white flag. You know what? This, this sin that is obviously commanded in God's word that I'm not supposed to be partaking in, you know, I give up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be... a partaking in this particular sin for my entire life. And I said, well, are you reading the same book? He says, you can't do that. You can't give up. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Believe the gospel. Don't believe the lie. If you have come to this conclusion that there is a particular besetting sin that you've been fighting with for years, perhaps even decades, and you've come to the conclusion, you've conceded the territory, blocked it off in your mind and in your Christian life and said, this one cannot be defeated by the gospel. And Satan has you right where he wants you. He would love for us to believe the gospel cannot penetrate and defeat all besetting sins. And so, remember this morning my Christian friend, that the Christian life is a war of competing desires. And I want, like Paul, I want us to cultivate, cultivate godly desires. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans chapter 6. He says, let not sin, therefore reign, taking hold of the reign, steering the direction of your life. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul says, don't do this. And then he says this. It's like, is it that simple, Paul? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. That is remarkable. Friends. And I, I do ask that God would give faith. For us to believe this. Some, some of us are so entangled in sin that to hear this, you immediately conclude that can't be true. And you move on. 
but I am asking the Lord to give faith, to believe his word. We have the power at our disposal to develop new desires. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 6. Don't present your members to unrighteousness. Present them for righteousness. You see what he's saying there? We have the power at our disposal to develop new desires. Of course we can't develop the fruits of the Spirit, but we position ourselves in such a way that he, he will enable, he will empower us. But if we continue to position ourselves here and think, okay, I'm on my path, but he says to be on his path, and I'm going to stay on my path and pursue my sin and my unrighteousness, and I'm hoping that he just sort of passively, I'm trying to give it to him, but he's just, I'm not doing anything else, but I'm hoping that he just sort of produces this fruit in my life, and then I'll come over here. No, he says, repent. Repent. Turn from all the sin that he's given you, the grace to see in your life, to all of God that you can see of your life. Turn there, and then beg him, plead with him. God, I can't do this. This thing feels powerful, but the Spirit is more powerful than... I'm not going to concede that sin is more powerful than the Spirit. What a terrible thing to have come to a conclusion of. No, I'm going to believe with all my heart and all my might that the Spirit is more powerful than sin. So here I come again. God, enable me to defeat this sin. That's how deep the gospel penetrates in the Christian life. It goes all the way to the level of desires. That's why the Christian can hold out a promise to the, to the LGBTQ plus community and say, God has an altogether better plan your life. I know you have particular passions now, but the gospel can change those passions. The spirit applying the gospel to your life will change those passions in your life. Wait, but this is how I am. But that's not who you will become. When you yield your life, believe the gospel, yield your life to the spirit's power, he he doesn't just sort of change our behavior. Oh, look at that little Christian with good behavior from the outside. No, he goes into the depths of the heart, the crevices of our heart, the secret places of our heart, and begins to rewire us over the course of our life to conform to the image of Christ, to obey God's word. If we have ungodly desires... Not behaviors only, desires. If we have ungodly attractions this morning, then we must stop sowing seeds into these ungodly desires immediately and start sowing seeds into godly desires while depending on the Spirit for His help. That is remarkable. He will begin to produce, verse 22, fruit in our lives. He will produce that fruit. So friends, how is your daily dependence on the Holy Spirit going? 
How is your daily dependence on the Spirit going? Are you like that insect from earlier in the message who flew strong from the start, looked great from takeoff, but became weighed down and fell? If so, don't worry about dusting yourself off and picking yourself back up because you can't. You cannot do it. Charles Spurgeon says this, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind. We are useless. But the good news is that every Christian present this morning has the Spirit. And the invitation for us today is to ask God for help as we turn from sin and once again believe the good news that Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you've done for us in the gospel. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask you for the grace to obey, to believe, to obey your word. Lord, we want to yield our lives to the Spirit's power that we might live for you, Lord, that we might live for you, that we might have the grace to defeat besetting sins, the grace to believe that the Spirit has the power to defeat the besetting sins in our life. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.